Well, in case you missed it, we just wrapped up Psalm 116 uh, sermon series we called Delivered. Um, that was Psalm 116 was this song from the heart of King David uh, about the deliverance of God, right? We saw him say, God, you've delivered me from death. You have kept my feet from stumbling. You have wiped the tears from my eyes. He goes on in the psalm and he says, how can I pay you back, God? What can I repay you for this salvation, for this rescue? And, and he lands at the end of that psalm at this line, truly I'm your servant. I will pay my vows. I will fulfill my vows in the presence of your people. In the presence of your people. And that's kind of where we land today. In the presence of your people. This is a sermon series called Gather, Share, and Bless. About living life and community. Really it's the first part of a trilogy of series. A series of series. I had to ask Siri what the plural of series was. And it was got weird really fast. Um, we're talking about the, the life in community. We're talking about discipleship. We're talking about how this community then looks outward into the community at large. What can we do about the brokenness that we see? That's September. That's October. That's November. We're in the fall. Can you believe that? We're finally to the season that I'm dressed for 365 days a year. I was made for this. I was born for this. It's football, it's pumpkin spice everywhere. I think they're doing a pumpkin spice burrito at Taco Bell this year, which, that's a joke. Okay, so we are here. We are in fall. We are talking about community, and I'm super excited about it. As we jump into this next month, this next season, what I want to do first is I want to pray for us. I want to ask God to guide and direct us that he would make a way for us. So let's pray. God, we give you these months. We give you these days. We give them back to you, God. How can we repay you for the salvation, for the deliverance you've given us? What we're going to do, God, is we're going to live out the life you designed for us. And we're going to live it out together. What we need from you, God, is instruction on how to live. We need strength for how to live when that life goes sideways. God, our goal, our honest genuine desire is to live life together the way you designed it. Will you help us? Will you lead us? Will you guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. So gather, share, and bless is a little phrase that we came up with as just this quick way of encapsulating what our community groups are all about. It's the mission of our community groups. We want a quick answer when someone says, community group sounds cool. That sounds fun. Maybe I'll host one. What do you do? Do you study this or do you go here at this certain time? You gather, you share, and you bless. Our community groups, if you don't know, there there are small groups. Um, If you've been here for any length of time, you've called them home groups and cell groups and life groups and home groups and community groups and home groups and life groups. And the word group is really what we're going for there. So that first word maybe is going to change a few dozen more times. But what it's about is this gathering... We get together and we celebrate, we worship together. And it's not the end of our community. It's not the end of our time together as God's family, is it? What we want to see is pockets of life-on-life ministry happening day in and day out throughout the city. The thing about community groups is you don't see them in the Bible, right? You don't see a verse or a, a psalm about community groups or a commandment like, thou shalt meet on the second and fourth Thursday of every month, right? 
unless there's something else to do, then thou shalt probably skip it. We don't have this really specific instruction about community group, what they should look like. That's not in the Bible. What's in the Bible is ways of living life together that are radical, that are hard, that are counterintuitive, that are countercultural. And so community groups in and of themselves are not some biblically mandated destination. Rather, they're our best man-made vehicle to get to that destination. Does that make sense? The community group is not something that God has said, do this thing. He has said, live this way. And so a community group is something that we have built to try to give some structure and some accountability to that way of life. So what is the destination that community groups take us to? Living in a new community, loving the Lord with all of our heart, loving our neighbor at ourselves. That's the destination. So when you think of a community group, think of it as a vehicle to get there not the destination in and of itself. Lots of people, whenever we reboot and reinitialize and revamp our community groups and give it a new name, people come and they say, I don't really call it that thing, but I've been living life with this person and this family for years, and we, we get together and we, and we pray and we eat and all, and we, we bless this. Awesome. We love that. There's, there's a lot of people that are doing this without that formal name and that structure to it. The reason we have community groups is because there's a lot of people that aren't, and there's a, lot of, there's a lot of difficulty that goes into doing that, and so we try to make it as easy and as accessible as possible. Gather, share, bless. We believe that is the God-given rhythm for the Christian life. Gather, share, bless. To gather is to admit that we need each other as we journey through life. To share is to understand that real community only exists through mutual submission, sacrifice, and vulnerability. To bless is to live out the truth that we have been given life so that we can be life givers. See, honestly, the reason community groups exist is because we don't naturally, organically, spontaneously share our lives, each other, as much as we'd like to think that we do. Living life together can be messy. It can be inconvenient. In America, we love our independence and our freedom, don't we? Independence and freedom, these are really good things. They're gifts from God. I can't stress that enough. They should be used for God's glory. Thank God for our independence, our freedom, right? But when we put independence on a throne, when we, start, when we move from loving and appreciating our independence to worshiping independence, we collapse into isolation. When, when, I, when independence is on the throne, we begin to reject and avoid any relationship that would seek to fully know us, to call us out, and to ultimately call us higher. See, when I'm talking about community, I can tell you in my own life, when I think back and I think of life lived out, I'm not thinking of that potluck and that campfire and the s'mores, that, that community group thing you see in slow motion where everyone's walking through the door with the platter of something and there's the cool lights out in the summer. And I'm thinking of that tough email I got from a good friend that said, bro, you're doing great here, but honestly, you need to change some things here. That's living in community. And that's tough. See, community means sacrificing that freedom and that clean predictability of the way your life is for something difficult and something worthwhile. 
this morning, what we want to say is that it's difficult and that it's worthwhile, that it's designed by God, that it's blessed by God. That to be saved by Jesus means not just to have your individual sins forgiven, but to be woven into a new human community. A true human community that he is creating. To be saved by Jesus means not just to have your individual sins forgiven, but to be woven into a new community that he is creating. To be saved by Jesus means to be saved from drowning in this ocean of sin and brokenness, right? We think of this picture of us drowning at sea and Jesus pulling us onto the shore of his salvation. Can you imagine that? That picture? We're shipwrecked. We're hopeless to save ourselves and he pulls us up onto the shore. Not just us, countless others, all shipwrecked, all hopeless to save ourselves, right? But there's only one shore. There's only one name by which we can be saved. There's only one shore. Sometimes we wish, don't we, that our our Savior was a little more considerate to us. We kind of wish, like, maybe he would save us out of that ocean of depravity and isolation onto a nice private beach, like the white sand, not a person in sight. The water is just perfect. We say, God, like, I know I was out there like floating on this piece of driftwood, baking in the hot sun, dying of heat exhaustion, and you pulled me out onto the shore. But like, I mean, don't get me wrong. That's really cool. But there's like a lot of people here. It's like super crowded, (laughs) right? When you are saved by Jesus, you are pulled out of sin onto the shore you are rescued and you are rescued with other people and that's not optional there are other people he is building a community he's designing a community he died to create this community he's going to return for this community he lovingly calls this community his bride right think about it this way as i'm talking about this life and community is not optional think about it this way This is kind of a surprising uh, way to think about it. If you look through the New Testament, you're going to see the Apostle Paul uh, talking to different communities and churches. He's writing these letters of instruction. And there are times where he says things like this. Um, I'm not married, the Apostle Paul. I'm not married, and I'm I'm more effective for the gospel for it. There's a blessing there, and there's a way that God is using that in, in my life to further his kingdom, right? So what he's essentially saying is he's saying marriage is awesome. God blesses marriage. If you're married, be faithful. Pour yourself out for your spouse. If you're not, that is completely within the bounds of the Christian life. There is a blessing and there is mission in that. If we're saying that marriage is then optional within the, the Christian life, then having kids would be optional within that same Christian life, right? You'll see times when he says husbands do this. Wives do this. People with kids... Treat them this way. But does he ever say, people that are living in community, make sure you do this, and you do this, and you do this. To those of you who have chosen not to live in community, then do this, and do, no. It's, there's this implication in all of scripture that we are living it out together. Those letters are written to communities. When Jesus is teaching, he's teaching the multitudes. This is a community that Jesus has designed through his radical countercultural teaching. 
So what I want to do is I want to look at uh, Luke 6 this morning together. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to pick it up in verse 17. Just a little bit of the backstory here. Um, Before we start this passage, Jesus is up on a mountain with the Father, and he's communicating with God. He's, He's hearing from God. And then he descends, and the people gather around him, and he delivers a word to them. It's, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to read the first part of it, starting in uh, Luke six seventeen. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon, who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured, and all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out of him and healed them all. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, and he said, so the rest of this is Jesus' words. He lifted up his eyes to the disciples, and he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. So, so, uh, for so their fathers did to the prophets. And then he, he, this is the other side of the coin. But woe to you who are rich, you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, For you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now. For you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For so their fathers did to the false prophets. We're going to come back and talk about these blessed are you and these woe to you statements. As we move forward. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those who you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Now we could take a series and talk about the Sermon on the Mount for, for six months. I mean, there, is, there are so many statements made that are bizarre and radical, and they need explanation. But we're going to focus on two things from this passage this morning. Uh, before we get into those two things, the first thing I want to say is that this story is a beautiful mirror image of the story of the Ten Commandments. We find this often in Scripture that something that Jesus does uh, shows up as something that has been foreshadowed in the past. So in the, in the story of the Ten Commandments, we have Mo, uh, Moses who is up in the mountain. What is he doing? He's with the Father. He's talking to God. He's hearing from God. He descends down the mountain 
people gather and he delivers God, God's word, right? Jesus, in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, he is in the mountain. He's speaking with the Father. He's hearing from the Father. He descends with God's word. People gather. He delivers God's word. So let's talk about the Ten Commandments. Let's talk about what this is a reflection of and what this is a replacement of. What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? A lot of people would say the Ten Commandments are the way to God, right? This is the list of ten things you can do so that God will save you. It's our end of the deal. It's our end of the bargain, right? Something like that. But if you, if you read Exodus, you'll see that their freedom doesn't come from obeying the law, that they are set free first, and then they are given this law, right? We see that they are delivered from Egypt, they are delivered from slavery, and then they are given the Ten Commandments. So what is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? I would say it is to establish his people, that God is a, a people-making God. And his word and his way of life and his instruction when it is breathed out into a community, it changes uh, the community from a collection of individuals into a people. That is what Moses is doing when he delivers the Ten Commandments, and that is what Jesus is doing in a new and radical way when he delivers the Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says there are two things that are going to be characteristic of this new community that he's creating. The first is the values that they share inside of the community. And the second is the relationship that the people have in that community to those that are outside of it. Let me say that again. The first thing that makes us a community is what we believe together, what we share, what we value together. The second thing that makes us a community is the way that we treat people who don't value those same things. So let's start with those shared values. What is Jesus laying out for us? He says, to the rich and the full, to those who are laughing, and, and that word laughing there is not meant to say those of you who are enjoying your life or having a good time. A better uh, translation or a, a different translation might say gloating, uh, bragging, right? Someone who is chuckling to themselves and saying, look at what I have accomplished. That's the person who is, is laughing, right? So to the rich and the full and the, and the gloating and the famous Jesus says, you've got another thing coming, and I feel bad for you. Woe to you. There is regret coming your way. Now, rich, full, laughing, all men speak, men speak well of you. Think of that as power, comfort, success, and recognition. Those may be the lifeblood of the man-made community, right? But Jesus says, in my kingdom, the happiest ones are the weak ones, the sacrificial ones, the grieving ones, and the left out ones. This is a bizarre statement. There's a commentator, Michael Wilcock, who sheds some light on it. I really like what he says. It, it opened up the meaning and the richness of this statement. He said, In the life of God's people will be seen, first of all, a remarkable reversal of values. They will praise what the world calls pitiable and suspect what the world thinks is desirable. So he's saying grief and weakness and misery, those aren't something that we go and seek out as Christians. That doesn't make any sense. But, but we embrace them when they come. That paradoxically, when those things come into our life, they can serve to make us more happy, more blessed, more whole, as they underline our need for God. That knowing our need for God is the happiest place that we can be because it's contrasted here 
with the powerful and the comfortable, the famous, the successful, the one that is dangerously close to missing their own need for God. Now he's saying that power and comfort aren't to be avoided at all costs, but that we aren't enslaved by them. That we don't seek suffering, but we prize it. That we don't refuse power and success, but that we're suspicious of it. Eugene Peterson has a paraphrase of some of these, uh, blessed are you and woe to you. I took the first two and I put them back to back and it sounds like this. You're blessed when you've lost it all. God's kingdom is there for the finding. But it's trouble ahead if you think you have made it. What you have is all you'll ever get. What he's saying is back to that the analogy of being rescued out of the ocean onto the shore of God's salvation. He's saying the one who washes onto the shore naked as the day he was born, sunburnt, coughing out salt water, is better off than the guy who is sitting on a luxury yacht sailing into the sunset in the wrong direction. He's saying that to have nothing is to know our need fully. And to have what the world would call everything is to obscure that need to our own destruction. A radical reversal of values. Do you feel like you have nothing? And I'm not talking about your bank account necessarily. Do you feel like you have nothing in, a, in this relationship? This piece of your future, does it feel completely empty? Because here is Jesus, your Savior, saying, You are a blessed one because this need you have brings you to a desperate place and desperate people are the happy ones because they see their need for God and they run to him. Oh, but regret is coming for the one who has everything that they need and they never fall on their knees and say, Jesus, save me. So I said that there's two things that make this community unique. The first thing is those shared values, that remarkable reversal of values. And the second thing is the way that they treat outsiders. This is the second part of our passage from the Sermon on the Mount. This is where Jesus says, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Wow. First we see this inward response, pray for those who mistreat you. Inwardly, before there's any sort of confrontation or discussion or conversation or reaction, internally within your own own heart, will yourself to want this person's flourishing. Drain yourself of ill will. And then there's this outward response. Do good to those who hurt you. After you've done that work internally of lifting up that relationship to God, and saying, God, change me. Help me love this person who hates me. Then there's an outward response. Do good to them. This is where he gets into turning the other cheek, right? I want to talk about turning the other cheek a little bit and culturally what that meant. See, back in the day, they didn't do like the handshake and then the bro hug or the fist bump and the explosion. This is what they did. When you walked up, they held their cheek out to you like this. It's you're, what you're doing is you're extending friendship. You're saying, give me a kiss on the cheek. That was this sign as someone is approaching you. I'm your friend. I'm open. Come, be welcomed by me. 
What he's saying when he says turn the other cheek is there's a few things wrapped up in that statement. First, there's an implication. If we're turning the other cheek, then there was already the first cheek, right? So this is saying that when you approach, when you confront, when you are living amongst someone that hates you, your first reaction is I'm here, I'm extending my friendship and my welcome to you. You're literally putting your neck out, right? The second thing he's saying is it's really likely, we already know they hate you, we've already established that, it's really likely that they're not going to walk up to you and give you that kiss and accept your friendship. It's really likely that what they're going to do is punch you in the face. And this is where his words become profound. What he's saying is, a card laid is a card played. Around the board game table at my house, this is a rule called no takesies backsies. Okay, you've already put it out there. You said, I am here. I want to be your friend. I know that you hate me. And I'm extending myself with welcome in your direction. Then you get clocked, okay? And then you say, I'm here. I'm extending myself, right? What you're not doing is you're not expecting, condoning, promoting more sin and more pain to happen. In fact, you're doing good to someone. So think about that. If you're doing good, you're not letting someone walk all over you. That's not doing good to them. What they may need is confrontation. They may, may need a little bit of debate. They may, they may need to be challenged. They may, may need that tough email that says, bro, you're doing some good things here, but you really got to change here, right? But we're praying for those who mistreat us. So inwardly, before any of this happens, there's this draining of ill will. This is absolutely revolutionary. He, he's he kind of gets funny here. He starts talking about tax collectors. This is always kind of funny. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm freaked out about the day that we start talking about tax collectors and we've got like two IRS call center employees in the back of the room and they just stand up and leave because they're like, why are you specifically calling out my occupation as this terrible thing, you know? So when we read the word tax collectors, a better way to, to read that is like, a member of the mob, right? This is like someone who's like organized crime. This is like, uh, you know, just everyone knows it's happening. They get away with it. They're ripping everyone off. They're profiting off other people's loss. They're exploiting vulnerable people. That's a tax collector in the day. Everyone knows it. They know it. It's just out there and they're like, yeah, that's how I live and I get away with it and it's fine. What Jesus says is those kind of people, they love people who love them. They do good to those who do good to them. They serve people who serve them back. Even the shadiest people you can think of do stuff like that. This is a different way of living, to earnestly seek out good for those who are out to hurt us. Can you imagine a community like that built on two things? A shared belief in values that are upside down, that it's better to be poor and have nothing and know our need for God and be humble than it is to be successful and well-known and proud and rich and full. And secondly, an awareness of this miraculous welcome that we've received that, that pours out in this extension of unfathomable grace to those who are on the outside. Can you imagine a community like that that's tightly knit and wide open at the same time? So how do we get there? Here's what has to happen continually for us to be a community like that. You and I need to every day revisit the gospel, continually have a revolution in our understanding of our own sin. 
What makes us insiders? What makes, quote unquote, them outsiders? When asked, where would you draw the line? I would argue that most of us would draw the line right behind us. We just make sure that we just eke in and we say, yeah, that coworker's on the outside and that neighbor's on the outside. No, I'm not perfect, but we go back to those Ten Commandments, right? We say, I've never killed anyone. I'm on the inside of that line, right? I'm, I'm not committing adultery. I'm on the inside of that line, right? We pick the ones that we, we go, oh, there's something about coveting, but that doesn't sound as important. So yeah, I'm on the inside of that, right? Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm going to just paraphrase it. Jesus cuts to the heart of this issue. Remember, he came like a true and better Moses to establish his people in a brand new way. See, the law that Jesus delivered was not the Ten Commandments. It was himself. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery. He just moved the line way forward. He says, you've heard it said that you shall not murder, but I'm telling you that if you're angry with your brother and sister, you're subject to the same judgment. He just moved that line a little forward. What he's saying is, I'm drawing the line way in front of you. In fact, I am the only insider. I am the only way. I am the only shore you can be rescued onto. Christ himself is the line. He is the new law. You are either inside of him or you are outside of him. To be saved by Jesus is to be hidden inside of the only insider. It is to be an adulterer and a murderer that has been offered the other cheek. See, the, the story about turning the other cheek in and of itself is profound and it's inspiring. And you say, yeah, I'd like to do that. That sounds very neat. The beauty of it is this is right at the beginning of his ministry in one of his first teachings. And when you look at the end of his ministry, the night before he is killed, he shows us what he meant. He's with his people. He's hanging out. And a crowd of guys starts to come at him knowing what's coming, knowing that there is hatred coming on the other end. Arms open, extends his cheek. And he's given a kiss. Now the backstory there is that kiss was a secret symbol that behind the scenes showed the right people, the guy that I'm going to give the kiss to, that's who you arrest and that's who you murder. So Jesus is killed. Jesus rises again. And he opens up his arms and he, he turns the other cheek. He says, I haven't changed my mind. I haven't revoked my offer of friendship and welcome to you. And only when we see ourselves in that light, as truly outsiders that are hidden within the grace of the only insider, can we begin to live out those upside-down values and unfathomable welcome that Jesus has designed us for. I want to close with some perspective from C.S. Lewis. This is a life-changing way of explaining the power of the new community to affect eternity to those that God puts in our path. This is from the weight of glory. C.S. Lewis says this, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, 
to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as now you only meet in a nightmare. He says all day long we are in some degree helping each other to one of those destinations. That in light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Listen to this. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, planets. These are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, who we work with, who we marry, who we snub, who we exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. That is a perspective-shattering way of looking at the people in your life. Lewis echoes Jesus' new way of thinking. The only right response to God's mercy is to share it, that the world we see is a fragment of the world that is, that God's kingdom is completely different than the kingdoms of this world. That the lady who cuts your hair and the college kid at the drive through window are headed toward eternal glory or eternal emptiness. That the guy who cut you off in traffic and that bully in your kid's class could one day be so beautiful in the light of Christ's redemption that if you saw them now, your gut reaction would be to fall on your knees. That the co-worker who lied about you and the neighbor who drives you crazy could be headed toward unending darkness and desolation. And that this new community that Jesus established exists here and now to love them relentlessly together by gathering in his name, sharing what he has done for us, and blessing the world as we go, wherever it is that we go. Will you stand with me and pray? God, these are tall orders. These are new and radical ways of thinking and being. And the first thing that we need is your strength and your power to live them out. God, as we worship you this morning, as we lift our voices to you, will you respond to us? Will you speak to us from your word and through your spirit? That we would leave this place hungry, not for independence and freedom, not, God, for, for comfort and fame and recognition, God, but that we would be hungry for a sacrificial, humble life of loving others, even those who hate us, and seeing this world through your lens. God, which seems upside down to us, but is in fact right side up. The way that you have designed things, will you put that in our hearts? Will you write that on our hearts this morning? We worship you because you have saved us. How can we repay? How can we give back to the God who has redeemed and restored us. We're going to live the way you've designed us to live. We're going to do it in the place that you've designed us to do it, and that is as a community. Thank you, God, for your faithfulness to this community. 
that God, you have preserved us, that you have restored us, that you have changed us, that you have forgiven us. God, that you continue to pour out your word in a way that is transforming us into this bride that you love, you died for, and you're going to return for. Hallelujah. Thank you, God, for this community. Thank you, God, for your presence here. In Jesus' name, amen. During these three songs, as we uh, worship together, I want to invite you to come.